Well, the great news of 2022 is King Jesus is coming. And what is it going to be like when he comes? Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul is the writer here. He is writing to the church at Thessalonica. We believe he is writing from the city of Corinth. It is during his second missionary journey. Part of this second missionary journey has been to start the church at Thessalonica. We don't believe he had been long gone from Thessalonica, and he writes back to the believers there. And he writes in part in this book, in fact, a large chunk of the book of 1 Thessalonians, is the subject of the second coming of Christ. And one of the reasons for that is Paul had been with them, and he had been ministering to them, but he'd had to leave town early because of persecution, and he hadn't been able to complete the ministry of teaching that he wanted to complete in Thessalonica. Now, this was a new church. These were young Christians. They were just beginning their journey with the Lord. But as time passed, some of the believers were passing away. And so they began to be very concerned that somehow or another, these believers who had died would not participate in the second coming of Christ. And so what Paul does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is he writes to them and he's saying to them in particular, you don't have to worry about those believers who have already died, about whether they're going to participate in the second coming of our Lord. They will participate in the second coming of Christ. This is how they're going to participate in the second coming of Christ. And this is how you are going to participate in the second coming of Jesus. And this is what His coming is going to be like. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 are the most explicit, definitive statement we have on the specifics of the second coming of Christ that are in Scripture. Now, of course, there are a lot of other passages of Scripture. We looked at 2 Corinthians uh, earlier in the beginning of this worship service. The book of Revelation, of course, contains a lot of material there, and you can reference that. But this passage here specifically gets into details about what it's going to be like when the Lord Jesus comes again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to begin with verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, the purpose of this message today is to, number one, enable us to look at details that the Scriptures give us concerning the second coming of our Lord. Second, it is to challenge us to be prepared for the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And third, it is to encourage us to look forward to His second coming. I'm not going to get into all the various schools of thought that exist about the timelines and the schedules about how the Lord's going to do this. And one of the reasons I'm not going to do that is because I'm 
afraid too often we get so focused on the schedules and the timelines and the schools of thought that we lose our enthusiasm and anticipation about Jesus coming. No matter what school of thought you happen to fall into or you're trying to figure out how to fall into, the truth that the Scriptures teach is that Jesus is coming. We need to be ready for Jesus to come, and we have the opportunity to be excited that Jesus is coming again. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First of all, we see in this passage that we have a sure hope. Notice what he says beginning with verse 13, and we're just going to take it line by line as we go through this. But we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. He's saying you don't need to be uninformed about this. You don't need to be ignorant about this. This is one of these cases where ignorance is not bliss. You need to be fully versed in understanding about the second coming of Christ. He says about who? About those who are asleep. Now the concept that he's using here of being asleep is that of death. It is a metaphor in the New Testament for death. It is the idea that for those who have died knowing the Lord Jesus as their Savior, they are, they are at peace and they are secure. Now, we don't know all of the details about what it's like on the other side of death for the believer. We don't need to know all the details as long as we know they're with Jesus and Jesus is taking care of them. You can't get any better than that. So don't sweat bullets over what heaven's like. I always get frustrated when people are worried about how many pearly gates you got and how many streets of gold you got. Everything is like dust compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they are secure in Him. He says, we don't want you to be ignorant about them, but we want you to understand, verse 13, that you have hope. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Now, do we grieve when we lose somebody? Of course we do. But he says, we don't grieve in a hopeless position. And one of the reasons he's stressing this is because death in the pagan world and in the Greek world was viewed neg very negatively. And the reason for that is they didn't have any hope. When you look at death through the lens of the Lord, there is hope. And so he says, we grieve, but we don't grieve as others who have no hope. Why do we have hope? First of all, we have hope because we look back on what Jesus has already done. Hope begins with looking back at who he is, what he accomplished on the cross, his resurrection. He is alive, he is well, he is on the move. So we look back, our hope is grounded in what he's already done. Second, our hope is grounded in his current activity. If we look around us with the discernment of the Holy Spirit, we see where he is at work around us. So we have hope in the present and we have hope in the future because he has a plan and he is executing, he is moving forward with his plan. Our hope, as the old hymn says, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It is founded on the promises of God, and our hope is as sure and as bright as the promises of God are. So he says, we have hope. Now, moving on to verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or who have died. Now, notice he says that we believe the idea of faith there being active and engaged, that Jesus died and he rose again. 
Even so, through Jesus, key preposition there, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, if you hold there over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14, he references the resurrection of Christ. He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. If you take everything that God has done from the dawn of creation to when he's going to do it and complete it out in eternity of eternities, and you go smack dab to the middle, if you went to the epicenter of everything that God has done, you're going to land smack dab in the resurrection. The resurrection is the epicenter of what Jesus has done and that he's going to do. Because what Paul is saying here is we believe that Jesus died. We believe that Jesus rose again. And on the foundation of the factual, historical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that he is coming again. Our hope is not grounded in a bunch of ideas that sound nice about he's coming again because the tomb is empty in Jerusalem this morning, that assures us and tells us that Jesus is coming again. I know that he is coming and we live in anticipation of his coming because he rose from the dead. He's saying that the same God that raised Jesus up from the dead and emptied that tomb is the same God who is going to see that he comes again. It's grounded in the resurrection. If the tomb was full this morning, we'd be in trouble. But because the tomb has been empty for 2,000 plus years, we know that he is going to come Again, So he says, we believe that he is going to come again. And when he's going to come again, what is he going to do? How is he going to come again? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, now look again at that preposition, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or who have died. So he's saying when he comes again, he is going to bring with him those who have died in the Lord, those who through Jesus, God will bring with him. Let me illustrate what he's saying this way. He's saying, even so, again, that preposition, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I got a sponge here. Sponges are designed by nature to absorb, to take on the characteristics of what they absorb and to be filled with what they absorb. Now, he says... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. God created our human spirits porous like a sponge. God created our existence porous like a sponge. Why did God create us porous in our spirits like a sponge? So we could be absorbed in him and absorb him into us. He is saying here that when... Jesus comes again, that he's going to bring those who have died in Christ. How is he going to bring them? Through Jesus. In other words, Jesus has absorbed them. They have absorbed Jesus, and they are going to be caught up in the work of God and what he is doing. They don't have any any ability even to question what's going to happen. He's saying he's going to bring them through Jesus because they are absorbed completely in what he is doing. 
So the next time you see a sponge, just know that God made you and created you for you to be absorbed in Him. The Bible calls that being in Christ, for Christ to be in you. And for those who have died in Christ, they are absorbed in what God is doing. So He is going to bring them with Him when He comes again. And that is that sure hope that we have. Now, notice the reunion that he speaks of here. Again, verse 14, he says, God will bring them with him. Verse 15, he says, we're not going to precede them in any way. It's a double negative there in the original language. There's no way are we going to precede what he's going to do with them. And the idea in verse 15, when it speaks of the Lord's coming, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul is, notice how the emphasis he's putting it there. A word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who were left, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The word translated coming there was a word that was used in that day to speak of a king or a royal dignitary that came and was celebrated with great pomp and majesty. And he's saying that when Jesus comes again, he's going to come bringing those with him who have died in the Lord, and then we're going to be called up to meet them, and we're going to be reunited with them in his presence in the sky. So we have a sure hope, and secondly, we have a sure reunion. Often as a pastor, when I conduct a funeral service for a saint that's gone on to be with the Lord, believer who's gone on to be with the Lord, what I will say to the congregation is, this is not goodbye, this is just so long until later. And the reason it is so long until later is because we have a word from the Lord that it is so long until later. But folks, what I'm looking forward to is on that day of reuniting, we will be reunited with them, first of all, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every moment that we share with each other this side, yes, we're in His presence, but we're in the presence of sin, and we're in the presence of degradation, and we're in, presence of, in the presence of the effects of sin and all that mess. When we get in His presence that day, we are not going to be in the presence of sin. We're not going to be in the presence of disobedience. We're not going to be in the presence of the effects of sin. We're just going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that going to be awesome? Just in His presence. When we are gathered in His presence that day, we are not going to have bodies that are subject to aging and to sickness and to death and to illness and all of that. We're going to be in His presence with bodies shaped like unto His resurrection body, not subject to all the things of this earth. The greatest is still ahead. I can't say that enough. The greatest day is still ahead. That's what we live for. That's what we are looking for. I'll talk more about that in just a few moments. So we have that day of reuniting that is coming. And may I say to you, because many of you that I'm speaking to here in this room and otherwise, you've got a loved one or loved ones that have gone on to be with the Lord, who knew the Lord, and you're looking forward to that day, but you grieve particularly when we go through holidays, etc., of separation. And that's understandable, and that's part of being a human being. But folks, someday when we are reunited in His presence, the time of separation, this side of heaven is going to seem so small to an eternity of being together. The time of separation will seem like a blink of the eye compared to the eternities of being together in His presence. Now, notice what comes next. We have a sure encounter with Jesus awaiting us. We have a sure encounter with Jesus awaiting us. It says in verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend 
from heaven. It doesn't say an angel is going to be assigned this job. It doesn't say a great prophet of the Old Testament is going to be assigned this job. It says the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Jesus is not giving this to anybody else. He and he alone is doing it. Last night I was visiting a home and there was an article on NBC News that was showing and highlighting some of the reunions over this Christmas, in particular with military members of the family. And they highlighted uh, in particular a, a guy, a dad who had been on deployment for four months and he showed up at his son's football practice uh, unannounced. And the young man was there in his uniform practicing and his dad and it was in his uniform a military uniform, and he walked upon that field, and when his son saw him, he ran over there and threw his arms around him, and his dad threw his arms around him. They just stood there hugging each other, and you could sense that the, boy, the teenage boy looked to be about 16, 17 years of age, was, was crying as he was hugging his dad. That dad would not have de- given over or designated any other man to take his place on that football field. That was He was reuniting with his son, and nobody else could take his place. Jesus is not going to let any prophet do this. He's not going to let any angel do this. He is so looking forward to grabbing you and holding you and hugging you and claiming you that day in his presence that the Lord himself will descend. Now, how is he going to descend? It says he's going to descend from heaven. And then he goes through a list of descriptions of how he's going to descend. First of all, he says he's going to descend with a loud command or with, it's translated, a cry of command. Interesting term there. And all of these terms that are used here, again, they pull it out of the culture of the day. First of all, it was a military term. It spoke of a military commander commanding his troops, calling them into place. It was the idea of, of a shout of war and the words that would come from a conqueror. And so when Jesus comes again, he's coming as a conqueror. He is coming with the shout of war. He is coming saying charge. And that he is in charge. It is a shout of joy. It's that joy again of a parent when he sees their child. So he's going to come with that cry of command. Second, it says with the voice of the archangel. Michael is the archangel of the Old Testament. He is Israel's guardian angel. The angels were God's way of saying that he was with his people. And he, the angels come to call people to worship. Call people into worship. And we're going to see this again in a few moments with the reference to the trumpet call of God. But please don't miss this. When the angel comes and begins to sound the voice of the archangel, and again, that is the chief angel, Michael. When angel, the angel Michael begins to shout the coming of the Lord, that shout is to call us to worship. Because the first thing, the foremost thing we're going to do when Jesus comes again is worship Him. And so the angel is calling us into His presence to worship Him. And when you read through the book of Revelation, one of the things that that stands out in that book is the worship of the book of Revelation, particularly the 19th chapter, the, the overwhelming worship. And every time people are in the presence of God, the worship becomes spontaneous. You see, when we are in His presence, and when we stand in His presence that day when He comes again, 
the worship that we begins to be elicited from us is going to be compulsive and spontaneous. We will not be able to help ourselves to keep from worshiping Him. The presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we engage His presence and He engages us, the first, foremost, overwhelming reaction that we have is to worship Him. It just... I mean, before anything else happens, we are compelled to worship Him. And so the angel is going to call us to worship Him. Now notice next, it says that you will hear the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet of God. In the Old Testament and New Testament eras, there were trumpets that were called sofars. And they were used for the following reasons. First of all, to gather the assembly of the people together. To give orders for battle. The Romans used the trumpets to sound for war. They were used for loudness. And let me give you six reasons that trumpets were used in the Old and New Testaments and in the era of Paul's day. Number one, they were used to announce an event But they were used to loudly announce an event because the event that was being announced was going to be very public. When Jesus comes again, it's going to be a public event. It's not something he's had. It will not be like Bethlehem. Quiet, unassuming, and no one but the shepherds and Mary and Joseph knew about. This is going to be a very public event. Number two, trumpets were sounded to commence an attack. And his second coming is the announcement of his final attack on the forces of evil. Number three, they were used to proclaim military victory. And the trumpet of God is to announce that he is victorious. Number four, trumpets were used in the Old and New Testaments to announce acts of worship. You're being called to worship. It is the time of worship. Worship has begun. Number five, in the Old Testament, the trumpet was sounded on the Day of Atonement, which was the most holy day in the life of Israel. And the Day of Atonement was about two things. Number one, liberation. The nation was being liberated from its sin. And number two, restoration. They were being restored to the Lord. When he sounds the trumpet on his second coming... We are being liberated from everything on this earth that has been holding us back. And we are being restored 100% into relationship with Him and into His presence. And then finally, trumpets were sounded to announce the arrival of a king. Trumpets were sounded to announce the arrival of the king. And the trumpet is going to sound to announce that the king of kings and the lord of lords is on his way. And he is here. Now, what happens to us who are alive? Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. It says we're going to be caught up. The Greek word there means to take something suddenly and forcefully. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2, just a few verses down, it says, When he comes, he's going to come like a thief in the night. And so when Jesus comes again, he is going to call us up. But we're not going to be on this earth straining to try to get up there to him. 
We're not going to be trying to work ourselves up into some kind of emotional state. It says he's going to reach down and he's going to grab us and he's going to grab us forcefully. He's going to take us very intentionally and pull us up immediately to be in his presence. We're going to be caught up with who? Verse 17, with them. That is the dead in Christ. You don't have to, we don't have to worry about trying to put together the reunion in the sky. He says when he pulls us up and snatches us up, we're going to be there in the sky, in the clouds, he says, with those that he's bringing down with him. That is, all those who have died in Christ ahead of us, they will be coming with him. We're going to be called up to meet them and to be reunited with them and with the Lord in the sky, or he says, in the clouds. Now, the idea of clouds here has a lot of different uh, metaphors to it. Some believe that it is a reference to angels. In other words, there will be a huge uh, conglomeration of tens of thousands of angels, the heavenly hosts that are going to be coming, and there will be like clouds when you look. Some believe it's the combination of the clouds and the saints who were coming with them, all those who have died in the Lord, and so it will look like clouds. Clouds are also used in Scripture to speak of the mystery of God. Whatever interpretation and application you've got, when you look up there, there will be this tremendous eye look of what it's going to be like. The best I can give you is if you've ever flown, you know what it's like when you fly and you break through the clouds and you get on the other side of the clouds in an airplane and you look out the window and you see the sun shining down and the clouds are all around you. I don't know if you've ever had that experience or not when you've flown. I always wish they could just stop the plane and let us all get out and play on clouds for a few moments when I see that. You know, probably once you stepped out the plane, it wouldn't be real pleasant, but uh, gravity would take over. But I've always thought, man, it should be nice. They could just stop this airplane and you could jump out here. We could jump around on clouds for a few moments out here. But the beauty of that and the serenity of that and the majesty of that view and the awesomeness of that view, I think that is somewhat of a picture of what it's going to look like when the Lord Jesus comes again and meets us in the air. Now, I want you to see something, verse 17. He says, we're going to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, it's very interesting that Paul says, we will meet the Lord in the air. Why is it that he chooses for us to be reunited and to have this tremendous worship experience and celebration and for Jesus in his coming to proclaim that he is King of kings and Lord of lords in the air? The Bible says that Satan is the prince of the air. So Jesus has chosen intentionally, to say the place that he will proclaim himself victor, the place that he will come, the place that he will gather all of his followers in a massive worship celebration is the very place where Satan today says is his place. Let me illustrate it this way. During the Second World War, when the Allied bombers would take off and head to Germany, to bomb. This is what they would say to each other. I will meet you in the skies over Berlin. I will meet you in the skies over Berlin. And what those aviators were saying to each other is this. Where Nazi Germany has its epicenter of strength, that's where we're going to meet, that's where we're going to bomb, and that's where we're going to be victorious. 
And when this balmy mission is over with, the Allies are going to control the skies over Berlin, not the Nazis. We are going to tell Hitler who's really in control when we meet, you, meet each other in the skies over Berlin. And what Jesus is saying here is, Satan, I'm serving notice on you. We are going to have a worship celebration for the ages at the epicenter of what you thought was your place of strength. You're going to be defeated at the very place where you thought you were in control. And my, my followers are going to come into each other's presence and into my presence in massive worship celebration at the place where you used to be in control. Now notice what he says wrapping this up in verse 18. And so we will always be with the Lord, going to be with each other, with the Lord forever. Now verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. In other words, come alongside of each other. And remind each other of this. Challenge each other with this. And encourage each other with this. Now, how should this affect our lives? Number one, we have a sure hope. We need to stay focused on the future. We need to look forward to this day that He is coming again. We have a hope. We have a sure hope. We need to stay focused on that hope. It is so easy to get caught up in all the mess we go through on a daily basis, and you just get grind down by that. It has been so easy the last going on two years now to think the coronavirus is, you know, just drained every bit of hope that we've got and to get all wrapped up in that. What he's saying here is the hope that we have is an eternal hope. It is a sure hope, and we live as people of hope in anticipation of what he's going to do. And that he's coming again. And how do we know we got this sure hope? Again, it is because that tomb is empty. He is resurrected. And his resurrection assures us of our resurrection and of the hope that we have. Second, it does matter how we live. It does matter how we live. Because we're all going to stand in his presence someday. And so how I live today is preparing me for the day that is coming. When I looked at, at that news article last night and I saw those families reuniting and that football player hugging his dad, the reason those two guys grabbed each other, that dad and that son grabbed each other and hugged each other, is because they were in right relationship before they ever saw each other on that football field. And folks, we need to be prepared and be preparing ourselves for his second coming. He hasn't told us the day, it could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be sometime 2022. The issue is not knowing when it is going to be. The issue is being prepared for when he comes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we're going to give an account to him when we stand in his presence. But we need to live every day like he is coming today. And we're going to be, listen, when he comes, he's not going to say, hey, I'm coming this afternoon or I'm coming next week to so get yourself cleaned up. Totally unannounced, totally by surprise. So be totally prepared for when he comes again. And finally, we must live beyond this moment. We must live beyond this moment. The values by which we live are not about this moment. They are about His second coming. The values of this world and our culture are shifting all the time. But we don't live according to those values. We live by His values because we're living 
looking forward and anticipating being united with Him. And then finally, we live with vision. We live with a vision that Jesus is coming again. We live with the vision of the hope that that brings us, that Jesus is coming again. But we also live with a vision that says, I don't want to go by myself. I want as many people to go with me as possible. And so it is a vision of sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and getting as many people prepared and ready to meet Him as possible so that we have an awesome time together when we meet Him. I had a young man a number of years ago when I was doing a mission trip in Norfolk, and he'd been in our youth ministry, etc. And in chatting with him, I wasn't really clear whether he knew Christ or not. And I remember looking at him when we were out in a neighborhood, and I, and I began to sort of question him a little bit. And I looked at him at one point, point. I said, The reason I'm asking you these questions is because I want to spend eternity with you. The reason I'm trying to make sure you know Jesus is because I want to spend eternity with you. I want to make sure you know Christ. You're following Him. And folks, that's, that's, the, that's part of the vision. He's coming again. But we want to take as many people as possible. And when we go out this year and we share Christ with people, whether it's Windy Lane or Norfolk or wherever God takes us, across the street here in Rocky Mount, why are we doing it? Yes, it's to see Him come to Christ. But it is even more so that we can spend eternity with them in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we go to the Lord in prayer and we pray for them, and when we gather together as a church like we will Wednesday night and pray for them, it's so we can spend eternity with them. And let me give you one final challenge this morning. When we pray this year, I want to encourage us not just to, not just to say, God, would you pray, Lord, would you see people come to Christ? But let's pray for specific people that God places on our heart and our mind to pray that they will come to Christ and walk with the Lord Jesus and that they will be prepared to be in His presence. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank You this morning and praise You and bless You this morning that You're coming again. And we have that hope, that sure hope grounded in Your resurrection that you're coming again. Lord, we look forward to that day when we're going to hear the voice of the archangel, when the trumpet of God is going to sound, when we are going to be in your presence. Lord, we look forward to that. We anticipate that. And Jesus, we want to just take as many people with us and be used of you whenever, however this year, to see people come to know you as Savior and follow you. And God, help us to be prepared to stand in your presence. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we live as people of hope. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today or listening through any particular means, radio or through uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, and you have not given your life to Jesus, well, we want to encourage you and plead with you to say to Him, Jesus, today, come into my life. Jesus, today, I want to follow you. I want to be claimed by you. I want to claim you. I want to be identified with you. Jesus, I will follow you. And if you make that decision, please let us know so that we can come alongside of you and encourage you in your new walk with the Lord. If you're here in this room, we invite you in just a moment as we sing, if you need to, since the Lord is calling you to become part of our church family, to come and join with us. If you sense that you just need to talk with the Lord and do business with Him, 
But let me encourage you to do that. And let me encourage all of us as we sing to celebrate and to worship Him. In His name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.